it's it's pretty sad. What is it? Um, Donald Trump had to couldn't get his airplane. He had to get a, a meager airplane instead of the one well, that. I, yeah, oh, I saw that. I saw that video, and I've I've seen the floor. There's plan. a video. I haven't seen the video. What was there's it? A, who, there's a video. Some spank at. Um, I think you know one of the uh, maybe a, a dropout from um, um, the, the, <laughs> the program, the reality program he had a few years ago, uh, The Apprentice or something. Had did a walkthrough on this seven five of Trump's, mm-hmm. and it's nice and all that. Um, and I like the seven fifty seven. It's a, it's it's a very powerful airplane. It does a lot of very cool things that other airplanes don't do nearly as well. Um, and but he's he's disappointed. He had to settle for a narrow body. Oh yeah, it, you know that just makes me weep, crock up freaking dial tears. Uh, <laughs> And and I can tell you're all broken up about this. And I have to comment on some of the some of the feedback I saw attached to the site. A couple of guys that profess to be seven five seven captains saying, "Well, it's got better range than some of the wide than any of the wide bodies you can get out there today." And I'm like, "Who are you? Who are you? What? Uh -uh. What? (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but a Boeing business jet's a seven thirty seven. It's got better range than most of the wide bodies out there. Yeah, but a standard five seven. No, it was just barely transcon. Yeah. Well, they, they were going across the pond before it was over with, but they had different engines. And, and yeah. uh, the, the early models weren't all that, uh, didn't have very long legs now. But what, besides, why besides did you when you're buying one for operations like that, you tank it up. I right. mean, there's there, there, right. there's not, spots available. You can put tanks in the in a center wing section in the in the luggage bays, and make that puppy a five thousand, six thousand, seven thousand nautical mile machine if you want. It's exactly. just a matter of money. Mm-hmm. Well, what was the deal? Why, why could he not get the airplane he wanted? I mean, because oh, asshole. times are tough, man. You know, it's <laughs> tough on a billionaire these days. I mean, even talk of expecting some of them to pay taxes. I mean, how would you feel? Yeah. You'd settle for a you'd settle for a narrow body too. Uh, oh, is this, oh, this is all about losing the tax credit. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm no, saying it's because it's he's crying crocodile tears because times are tough. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 the the boys gotta gotta have a narrow body Boeing, not a wide body Boeing. I'm I'm sorry, but I I just cannot be that sympathetic. So what is this? This is from uh, uh, the Reporting Points blog on AOPA uh, Pilot. Uh, the AOP website, AOP.org. Um, and, 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 and hats off to Al, uh, who, uh, who, who did that little tongue-in-cheek thing for them. Uh, you know, it, that, that, that kind of sarcasm always works for me. Yeah, here's, here's what he wrote. Here's proof of the seriousness of the present economic downturn. Donald Trump, of the Donald fame, has been forced to buy a narrow-body Boeing 757 as his personal airplane rather than a wide-body. Uh, uh, we all have to cut back, uh, Alton Marsh on the blog writes. Um, maybe not like the 13,000 aerospace workers sitting at home unemployed in Wichita, even if our name is Trump. At least the seat belts are gold-plated and a small reminder of past glories. But sleeper seats? How exhausting. <laughs> so, yeah, well, right. I mean, uh, you, uh, you Mr. Know, Marsh, here's, chip of my hat. Here's, yeah. the, here's the deal. You know, one of these days, yeah. Trump, Trump's going to go tango uniform, okay? And we might, as, as, as UCAP, we might be able to come up with some scratch and buy this airplane. And I think it would look really, really cool 
on the North 40. I would be great on the North 40. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, I mean, he, should, he shouldn't be complaining. I mean, we had to postpone the purchase of our three Boeing business jets, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know? I mean, exactly. times are hard. Exactly. You got to like make make you know make adjustments. I'm just glad those were refund, were refundable deposits. That's right. I know. Right. I know. Because that would we would have been short on beer money otherwise. <laughs> would have been really well, tough. I'd even go without the gold plated seat belt buckles. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. You know, well, what, what you got to have seat, standards. What do you need seat belts for anyway? Oh well, there's that. Yeah. Anyway, okay. All right. I always kind of like the look of you know of polished brass. Yeah. Oh, I like, okay. Yeah. Brushed stainless is nice though too. Yeah. Brushed stainless is wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Even brushed yeah. aluminum can brushed look aluminum. good. Brushed aluminum, absolutely. Ana- anodized aluminum. We could get you know, uh, like a Halloween motif or something. Okay. <laughs> Welcome, folks, to episode 252 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. Clear. You're going to be hearing a little bit of background noise throughout the day, but it's just airplanes, so it's not, it's it's not really noise. It's good background noise. That's yeah, right. this, is, this is the best seat in the house. That's right. We got skywriters now. We got skywriters. We got skywriters now. Does that say UCAP? It's got a runway in the front yard. (laughs) (laughs) And you're on site, clear around. Turkey National Ground, good afternoon, sir. Taxi via Foxtrot and Delta. Recording this episode on, uh, what is it, Friday evening, uh, September 2, I think, 2011. And uh, joining me here in the virtual hangar, two of my very, very good friends. Uh, first of all, Jeb Burnside's out there talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. How you doing, Jeb? Doing very well. Thank you for asking. How mm-hmm. about yourself? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. I just got back from, well, I'll tell you about I got just got back okay. from in a little yeah, while. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, You just got back from Points West. Uh, Points, Points West. West. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, but what have you been up to, Jeb? You've been flying? You've been, what's going on? Um, flew down to visit. One of our regular guests here on the, on the podcast, mm-hmm. uh, Amy, Amy Laboda. Oh, really? How's Amy uh, doing? Doing well. Uh, flew down, I don't know, Sunday or Monday. Um, did breakfast, uh, sat around, talked to airplanes, talked... Breakfast? Uh, Wait a minute. Yeah. You flew down for breakfast? I flew down for breakfast, yeah. You was like, an hour. Like around I was one an, I was an hour late, but yeah, I got it was, there. <laughs> you went to a place that does breakfast all day long, right? You had yeah. breakfast at two in the afternoon. No, 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 no. This was to Amy's place um, down in Fort Myers. Yeah, uh, and um, um, I spent more time taxiing around trying to find her house than than the flight required. <laughs> uh, you mean she didn't come out to greet you? Well, Barry finally came out and 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 did a follow me thing, and I found the house. No, mm-hmm. I, I was I was about to find it on my own. Yep, but uh, Barry sealed the deal. And uh, and uh, I was and flew back home later that that morning. One thing I thought was novel about her. So when she took me flying, and this was in the Kit Fox. Forget the white, you know, the wingspan of the Debbie. Right? The Kit right. Fox. Kit Fox. You're taxiing down their street, and even more than your neighborhood, this looks like your basic suburban neighborhood. Right. And, and you basically had to S-turn around. If it was trash day, you had to S-turn around the trash cans. On I, the, I have to do that now on, the on, curb. on trash day, and some of the mailboxes are are. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe my airplane is just weird. Maybe I'm just, you know, extra cautious with the tip tanks or something. But um, I'm always zigzagging and S-turning and everything around, just mailboxes around here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but, but her her neighborhood is, is the setbacks is similar, or are similar, I should say. 
and um, you know, her uh, neighborhood is a lot more dense uh, than this one. Many more houses per per acre. Yeah, you know how to make that less of an issue? Those mailboxes and things. Just high, high wing aircraft. <laughs> also joining us here in the virtual hangar no, 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 is no, 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 one one word, Jack. Yeah. Chainsaw. Yeah, well, that too, right? Saws all. Um, that's two <laughs> words. Uh, that's Dave Higdon. He's joining us from uh, Wichita, Kansas, the ever-beautiful Wichita, Kansas. David, what was that number you were telling us earlier today? Number F- five, two. Fifty-two. The number of days this summer that we've hit or exceeded triple digits. Hit one, zero, zero. Yeah. We haven't even done that here in Florida. I don't think we've busted 95 also. That's, I mean, I've said this in past couple episodes when we talk about this. That's nuts, David. That's it just is. nuts. It's, it's, it's yeah, it, it's been kind of crazy. I mean, and our very first 100-plus day was back in early May. Mm-hmm. Uh, the majority of July was over 100 or hotter. Today, it was only about 104. Uh, and you know it's starting to fry your brain when you start to throw words like only in front of 100 anytime. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I know, really. Um, has there been any effect that they've noticed yet on general aviation? What would, I mean... Well, uh, uh, obviously every, you everybody's, takeoff role, yeah. everybody's takeoff role has been longer for months. Yeah, okay. Uh, climb rates have suffered a little bit. Uh, I know guys that say that they're, they're, if they leave their airplane sitting out on the ramp, it's so damn hot they need to wear oven mitts when they pre-flight. I can believe it. I can I just, just, wow. I, you know, I, okay, great. I, dude, it gets hot everywhere. And I've been living in the South and flying in the South for a long, 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 long time. Um, yeah, I get 100 and the sun shining down and all that. Um, get used to it. <laughs> well, what, what, what's, made it, what's made it particularly uh, tough is that we haven't had measurable precip in months. And... The uh, a lot of the nighttime temperatures have uh-huh. not even made it into the middle 80s, right. so stuff doesn't cool off at night. Yeah. There's a cumulative effect, like the little office that I work in. If it breaks a hundred for about four days in a row, it's hard for the AC to keep it cool during the peak of the day. Uh, and I'm talking about being able to cool the a 20 degree temperature difference when it's 109. Means it's still hot as hell in the temp in the office. Oh yeah. sure, oh sure. But now, see, I was I was talking with you about this during the pre-show. Um, so you got this new tropical tropical storm hurricane thing coming your way, Lee, I believe it's called. It's, and uh, uh, oh yeah, yeah. And well, I saw a rainfall map earlier today that made it look like there was going to be monster rainfall all over that central part of the U.S. And I'm tr- now trying to find the map to see whether or not it stretched into uh, into Wichita. Which tropical storm? Well. Yeah. I think it's called Lee. It's going to hit yeah, the it's, it's Alabama yeah. sometime yeah. in the next few days. Yeah. And uh, let's see now. Where would I have seen this? I don't know. But well, uh, it's, it's going to miss Kansas. Is according, it? According to the National Hurricane Center, uh, they're taking the track up to the just west of New Orleans and then over the top of New Orleans back towards, say, Mobile. Are not, not yeah, that'll never back, get here. Back okay. towards back towards Montgomery, I should okay. say, Alabama. Apparently, this is going to be a big deal. This is um, the, um, they're now forecasting that there are large areas that are going over a two-day span are going to get 24 inches of rain in two days. 24 inches of rain, two feet of rain in two days. That's that's nuts. 
That's yeah, nuts. That's, that is nuts. Yeah. That is nuts. Now, Jeb, oh, before Dave like has a little conniption here, let me just say this. And I'm Jack Hodgson, and I'm talking to you from high atop uh, Hurricane Ravaged Lookout Point in uh, Nottingham. Oh, yeah. How, what's... Yeah, that's the thing. So uh, we, a couple episodes ago, you were starting to, yeah, you were starting to prepare for the possible, you know, kind of getting clipped by uh, Hurricane uh, Irene, and then it continually kept veering um, off, off, well, to the east. Um, so it missed Florida altogether. I don't think any of Florida got any Irene yeah. rain. Um, right. We got we got some rain, uh, the couple of days it was going past us on the other side of the state. I'm not convinced the rain was related. Uh, we've been getting rain. Well, basically, what's what's turning into Lee or has turned into a tropical storm Lee was sitting off the, the west coast of Florida for a few days earlier this week mm-hmm. or last week, I should say. Yeah, spinning some rain onto us, and we've been getting more and more of that all week as Lee's moved off. We still get stuff that's just kind of spinning onto us from the Gulf. Um, yeah, it's been it's been overcast. Um, I think today's really the first day it's gotten up to ninety in several days. Yeah. Well, anyway, so what Irene ended up doing was it stayed mostly offshore until about the mid uh, east coast of the U.S., and then it started to well, come it, ashore it, down. It in, came ashore at the bottom of the uh, Outer Banks, in right North down Carolina. in Carolinas, and yeah. uh, rained pretty good down there. Uh, dropped a lot of rain all there along the east coast. Then apparently came directly ashore um, in like Connecticut area and uh, barreled up through the center of New England, uh, and. Uh, now, I missed it all. I was out of town, and I'll talk more about that in a little while. But I left town just before this whole thing even started to build up, and I was gone the whole time. And by the time I came back, it's nice weather again, all those downed branches and trees all over my yard. Not trees, but but branches everywhere. Um, so, well, that's uh, good. I, I, I was a little worried about your lake coming up. Yeah, well, I'm told that they uh, they pre- uh, did a uh, pre- preventative uh, opening of the dam. The, the, our lake is man-made. They control the height with a dam. and uh, We and they, control the horizontal. That's right. In this case, the vertical. Uh, and they uh, they opened the dam a couple days before. And as a result, they, there doesn't appear to have been any flooding at all. The lake level is just about exactly now the way it was when I left before, about a Question. week ago. Yep. Question. Yeah. The water that they release through the dam, mm-hmm. where does it go? It flows down uh, the Patuckaway River and then into the Lamprey River and then into Great Bay and then into the Piscataqua River and then into the well, the Gulf of Maine, which we call the Atlantic Ocean. The, the Gulf of Maine? Okay. Yeah. Oh, I was just curious. I, that's, I didn't know how far yeah. away the... Uh, I mean, and there's no question that those... I don't have any reports, but I would imagine that the, those rivers, you know, crested as well. Um, but the but the place that really got it bad was um, to the west of the hurricane track. Apparently, uh-huh. got all, all the yeah all there. the way up all the way up Vermont, the coast yeah. in Vermont. And my yeah. brother, who lives up in Vermont, up sort of near Montpelier, Vermont, um, they got hit pretty bad. Some major major road outages because of streams and rivers that just right. kind of went a, nuts. They got a lot of water up there. Yeah. yeah, my my brother. I'm not sure. I haven't spoken to him today, but uh, for the last you know for the first few days after this whole thing happened, he was trapped in. He lived in this really wonderful picturesque little valley there in the sort of north central Vermont and uh, he was they were cut off they couldn't every road in and out was 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 closed um, so uh, you know it's it's pretty hairy up there apparently and uh, um, I traveled to and from where I where I went um, by way of Route 9 which is a road that goes across the southern part of Vermont and there were reports of that having washouts too so I came back a different route but uh, 
So Hurricane Irene hit through here, but I missed it all, except to get to clean up all the branches and stuff that's on the ground. I wouldn't say you exactly missed it now. Yeah, which... I missed it, you know, but my family and everybody up here got to ride it, ride it out. Anyways, that was the hurricane. So that's more than enough weather talk for today. Yeah. Um, well, good luck, folks. Uh, you know, Lee is going to be real wet. Yeah. But that section of the country can use some rain, I think. Yeah, but 24 inches in two days? Yeah, well. That's nutty. That's nutty. It is nuts. And, yeah. and uh, well, I, I don't, you know, we, we, can, we can get political later. Yeah. Aviation. Let's see now. Before we uh, get into the juicy oh, stuff yeah, that's, here. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, let's that's talk right. about this. Um, so, so, David, is there yet more stuff about light squared and, and, uh, and uh, GPS jamming and all that kind of good stuff? What's the latest here? Well, yeah, there was some, uh, some filings due back uh, about a week ago. Uh, and the, the, the nice folks at light squared are unrelenting in their misuse of technological information to try to prop up their claim that this is really the uh, fault of the GPS manufacturers uh, and ignoring, you know, the technical standards and the, uh, like they claim that the GPS fail- industry's failure to comply with Department of Defense filtering standards is the root cause. No, uh, it's not. The root cause is the power of your transmitters, the proximity of your transmitters, the saturation of your transmitters, and the proximity of this frequency spectrum, which even uh, stuff that is made to the DOD's filtering standards, which this stuff is, that's kind of what the TSOs are based on in most cases, the uh, equipment still can't work within miles and miles of your transmitter towers running at half power. So it's time for you guys to just get over this. Uh, the uh, nice folks at the uh, FCC actually went right on record and said that uh, they're not going to let this go forward without clear and convincing uh, proof that this can be done without interfering with, inter- with, with, with the existing GPS systems, which, you know, uh, to repeat, go way beyond the airborne units uh, portable and installed that we use in our flying, the survey units and timing units and GPS units in our phones. Uh, crop dusters use them. Farmers use them. Uh, the military uses them a lot here. Uh, now they're a military e- system underneath it all. Yes. So it's a military system right at the top of it. Uh, it also screws up the wide area augmentation system uh, uh, function uh, on which precision GPS approaches are, are, are built on which ADSB is, uh, is largely being supported. So, uh, you know, the best news out of it was the FCC basically saying that uh, the, the chairman, actually, Julius Zinachowski, saying that they're not going to let them go forward without this being fixed. And, you know, that's a tough nut to buy because uh, bringing broadband to remote parts of the country is a laudable and worthwhile goal, uh, you know, for this administration or any other administration. There's no reason, just like we brought rural uh, electrification and telephone systems to rural areas, there's no reason why the folks out in rural areas shouldn't have high speed and wireless just like folks in like the city slickers. But this ain't the way to do it, guys. Yeah. Well, okay. Is there anything we need to do? 
can we talk to our representatives? Or you can definitely talk to your representatives. You can uh, send letters to the Federal Communications Commission because they're the folks that are kind of sitting at the crossroads on this. And you could back up uh, those comments with uh, uh, information and, and and statements of support to your local aviation organizations: uh, EAA, AOPA, NBAA, NATA. Uh, ATA, the Air Transport Association, everybody's kind of on board that this is only going to be a good thing for light squared, and everybody else is going to be a fish. That is, they're going to get scrawled. Okay. Let's see now. Uh, Moving on here. So it's a story from uh, um, avweb.com here, Um, and and I'm going to make this an entry. This is going to make this week's entry in a regular UCAP feature that I'm going to call, let's see, I'm going to call it Skynet Watch. Here we go. Skynet Skynet Watch. Watch. Um, this is a little item in uh, AvWeb. It says, Drone tests to expand. Military drones will soon be mixing it up with regular air traffic in up to 10, quote, airspace bubbles, end quote. The FAA and the Department of Defense are creating to test and prove the safety of integration of unmanned aerial systems. And it goes on to talk about a little bit more. I, I just, this is just, when I first read this, I thought what they were saying was that they were going to create these airspace, airspace bubbles and they would sort of be like MOAs that only the military guys were in. And I was wondering how that was going to prove that they could integrate. But if I read it more carefully, that's not it at all, it sounds like. Sounds like what they're really doing here is just defining some airspace, chunks of airspace that are public airspace. And within those chunks of airspace, they're going to let the drones go loose and see what happens. I I wouldn't say they're going to let them go loose. Yeah, I know. I'm being a little They're going to let them mix mix with us. uh, Now, does this fall into the same category as, like, you know, way back when, when the CIA gave, you know, LSD to unsuspecting citizens? All right. You know, it's like... Are we going to know where these airspace bubbles are so we can avoid them? Which will, of course, make the test very effective. Well, I was going to say, it, 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 we need to be told. We it need to be, be informed when the tests are going on. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so how you know, effective just like is we're told when there's a TFR. Yeah, more or less. <laughs> right. Just like that. That's the way you should do it. Right. They'll inform us through notums. <laughs> Why can't, you know... <laughs> Never mind. Yeah, I know. So, I don't know. God bless them. I, you know, I still believe in my heart of hearts that these unmanned... You guys are going to disagree with me, I think. But I still believe in my heart of hearts that these unmanned aircraft could, in fact, work in the, air, in the airspace system safely. You know, my buddy Bender the robot says the same thing. Yeah. He says the same thing. Yeah. says the same Here, thing. Here's says the, the here, same thing. Here's the deal. Here's yeah. the deal. Eventually... They can be integrated with, you know, a very small risk of a problem. Yeah, but, but these things are these these things are man-made. People who developed the hardware, they wrote the software. People are not infallible, and they will have made mistakes in the production of this hardware and this software. And those mistakes will be discovered in a very uh, unsatisfactory fashion. Thank you. Uh, um, if, if, as long as we acknowledge that and accept that, there's not a whole lot the three of us can do to stop this juggernaut from rolling down the hill. Um, but there, people will die. Um, sheet metal will be bent yep. uh, before the smoke clears, literally and figuratively. Um, on integration of unmanned vehicles into the national airspace system. It's and it not, will be one of those... Be, it's not going to be seamless, and it's not going to be painless. 
and it'll be one of those unknown unknowns. That's exactly right. That does it in. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be, oh, we didn't we never thought it would do that. We never thought about that. Yeah, well, that's why this stuff happened. I mean, let's look at it. Uh aircraft with high degrees of automation already fail, confuse, confound not only their automation systems, but the humans behind them to the point that people die. Uh, I don't know what in the world makes anyone think that it will be any better over the long run. I'm talking about a low percentage things here, but over the long run with aircraft that have no human backup and something will hiccup, something will get confused, it will default in a way that it was never intended and something will run into somebody mm-hmm. yeah how do and how do we know how secure the telemetry the the uh, um, uh, control uh, net is for these things okay um, why could it not be everything can be hacked right okay. yeah there's that so, too there's so that too. You, you've got the, the the possibility of some hackers uh, taking over control of some of these things, um, f- whether for nefarious purposes um, or uh, just to make a make a point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh, the whole thing it, is, I mean, I think that's clearly what the the future is going to be. Whether uh, you know we'll get to the uh, um, uh, remotely piloted or autonomously piloted vehicle carrying passenger subject later on. Uh, uh, that's a whole different topic. But unmanned vehicles, uh, automatic vehicles without any human being on them at all, that's, that's, I mean, that, I don't know, that train's left the station. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, all, you know, all the more reason to make sure you get a good briefing before you go flying. You know, so in the, well, in the I, event I like these- this later test will involve semi-automated sense and avoid systems. Yeah. What later chests? Later, later t- they're not going to have that later. first. No, no, they're going to yeah. need to bother with that just yet. All right, I'm sorry, but what? Obviously, what? we're going to be paying attention as this time goes on. So more later. It's like saying uh, we're going to let you get your pilot's license. We'll check your vision once you're done. Yeah. Um, you know, sir, it's not on the list, but uh, uh, on a somewhat related thing, uh, you talk about <laughs> you know you talk about phantom things that are out there in the airspace and you don't know about. Um, uh, a little less sinister, but but no less dangerous. Uh, I had a, I had a conversation with a, an instructor friend of mine recently, um, who I'm not going to name just yet because I'm not sure how much he wants to be on the record about this. But I, I trust him. He knows what he's talking about, and he's really tuned in. And um, he was telling me an interesting story. We all know that our charts contain, among many other things, um, indications of tall radio towers that uh, stick up off the ground that we want to avoid, obviously. Um, and, and the presumption has always been that there's some system that gets new towers included on the charts. So he's telling me how um, he happened to notice one time that there was a new new tall tower, like a 1,500, 1,200-foot AGL tower that went up in near one of the areas where he flies. And he noticed that it wasn't appearing on the VFR charts, or on the charts. He, he had occasion to be visiting a, a, a local um, ATC, a tower, and uh, that was literally in line of sight to this new tower. And he kind of pointed to it off in the distance. He said, he said, is that tower on any of your, like, you know, your da- in your databases or on your scopes? Or have they changed the minimum, you know, operating altitudes and things like that? And, and the controllers kind of looked at this thing and go, hmm, no. 
So my friend went and did some research. Uh, he first he called the FISDO and said, you know, what's the deal with this tower that's not on the charts? And they said, oh, we don't know. And he they referred him to the FCC because it's a radio tower. Uh-huh. He called the FCC and he started to put the story together. And I think I've got this correct. And we should get him on the podcast if he's going to go public. And I bet he would um, to tell the story more directly. But basically what he discovered is that the process of building a tower and ultimately getting onto the charts is kind of a two-step process. The people who the companies that want to build a tower get they they submit and get permits that sort of are the plan for building the tower. All right, and that's step one. And then they get a permit to get to actually build the tower, and that's when it gets into the system to appear on the charts. But it turns out that a lot of companies now are at least this is what he thinks he discovered are. Um, skipping step two they're not getting that second permit they're just building the tower right and as a result the tower is not getting into the bureaucracy the existence of the tower and thus is not getting onto the charts huh and um that 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 deserves to be kicked up to a level where somebody will go whiskey tango yeah now i take it none of you has ever heard of anything like this yes and no yes and Um, no i'm aware that it's uh um I won't say cumbersome, but not seamless process for um, charts to be updated with towers or other obstructions, for that matter, uh, other changed features. Um, there's a process. Um, sometimes it has to be a little. It has to be kickstarted uh, to get the process to move. But I know the process does exist. I, I, but it's, this is not the first time that that something has changed in the topography and not been charted in the first chart cycle. Right. But but apparently it's, in this it's particular... It's also not the first time that something's been built in an attempt to bypass oh, the no, FAA element of the approval process. Mm-hmm. And there have been instances where the agency had to go to court and got, if I remember correctly, a, three floors taken off of a building yeah. Yeah. that was still under construction. But they brought it down about 45 feet. Uh, you know, I mean, three full floors that they had already erected the steel on. And the, the, the guys are telling the court, yeah, but we've already got it up. So you can't make us take it down now. And, wow, lo and behold, the judge said, uh, yeah, we can. <laughs> so uh, this is pretty interesting. And, I, you know, I'm not sure. It's pretty, maybe this pretty damn scary. Uh, yeah. Jim, I'm not sure if this isn't isn't you know material for an ab safety. Um, it, it might well be. Um, you know, let's let's pursue this offline. Yeah, yeah. And you know, certainly if you're flying VFR, don't assume that if it's not on the chart, it doesn't exist. It's, I guess that's the. Well, big. And, and the FAA can actually block these things if their location puts them on an airway or on uh-huh. part of an approach, right? Exactly. A charted approach, so. You know, saying, eh, well, we'll build it and we'll talk to them later. Then they can't make us do anything. It's like, no, I really like the idea. I'll give 100 extra bucks to the FAA just so they can go after one of these numb nuts and have the whole thing right. built up, functioning. And then they say, oh, sorry, we're taking it down now. Yeah, because this is, you know, it's not just, it's, it's not on the charts, not on the VFR charts, not on the IFR charts. It's how, not long in, tower, it's, how long has this tower been up? 
Uh, quite some time, apparently more than one chart cycle. Um, really? he, he, that's what made him start to be really suspicious of the whole thing is that it, you know, it appeared and he thought it would appear in the next chart and it didn't. And that's when he started to call it to people's attention. And, well, it doesn't uh, get into TAWS databases. That's exactly right. It doesn't, no, you know? yeah, right. it doesn't get into all the databases that go into all the GPSs and all the, you know, whatnot. And so, and, and some of those databases, uh, are, are, are tools that allow us to fly in the soup. At altitude. That's right. It sh- it could it could conceivably change IFR minimums and so forth. You know. So. Oh, it could like change. Uh, it, it could change the uh, the the fact that a uh, IFR approach no longer has a clear zone on part of the approach. Yeah, yeah. So this is the thing. Uh, we got to look uh, look into this a little bit more deeply. Maybe get my friend to come on the podcast and yeah. talk about it a little bit more. Yeah, I'd like to hear more about this. Uh, we could we could alter his voice to protect him. No, we? I think I, I just didn't clear it with him before before bringing up on the podcast. I bet he would have been willing to let me name his name. But we'll, well, uh, you, you, you tell him we'll buy him a tank of helium. And <laughs> okay. Hey, uh, whoa, 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 whoa! Where's my tank of helium? <laughs> you don't need one, dude. Oh, that's a good answer. <laughs> so let's see now here. Um, uh, I'm not sure. I, mean, I was trying to dig. This is the story about Valcaria. What is it? Val Valcaria someplace. Val- Valcaria, Florida. Valcaria, yeah. Florida. This is an awesome story. Have you seen this story? Yeah. This is yeah. like. Uh, uh, I jumped up and down when I read this. One. I know, isn't this terrific? I did too. I, this I, is so uh, the like, FAA. Is it a FISDO or finally. some somebody of the FAA? So here's the story. Apparently, it's, it's the North North Florida FISDO. Yeah. Apparently. Yeah. So here's here's the story, and it, and and the first part of this is an old story we've heard dozens and dozens of times, and that is there's an airport that's under attack from a private group. All right. I'm shocked. Yes, I know, right? Um, a private group. Uh, what's the airport we're talking about here? Uh, let me find the Valkyrie. Valkyria. Yeah. Valkyria. Valkyria. I've got it here, too. Hang on X59 is the code X59 here. X59 is the designator. All right. So you guys look up the name for me while I'm telling the story here. So X59 has been under attack by one or more private or, uh, uh, groups in the community who want it to be gone. All right. The way they one of the ways, I guess, that they've been attacking it is just to be be just deluging the feds with complaints. Um Sometimes blatantly bogus complaints. The, the article here talks about how sometimes they've even submitted photoshopped images that made it look like there were violations that didn't exist. They were just like totally outrageous about this. Okay, and finally, after many many complaints, and and the uh, FAA um, uh, investigated this airport intensely. All right and could not find any problem with the airport. There was no violations of any kind on this airport in spite of all of these complaints by this private private group. So the FAA finally said, that's enough. We are not going to investigate any more of these complaints, period. Don't even bother, all right? Which is just like awesome. It's like, yeah, <laughs> common sense, wow, you know? You get somebody who's demonstrated as being, you know, being you know, just a troll is what we call them in the internet world, um, and uh, and the FAA is actually the, at least the local FISDO. And this is what makes me wonder, you know, is this like a local FISDO that's like peopled with some really smart people? Well, um, apparently, apparently it is. And I, I found the the PowerPoint file, and you know, it's PowerPoint, so I uh, I'm, I'm pawing through it here to, to make sure I understand who uh, which. Um, there's a, the name on here is Robert Potts is is the presenter presented uh, 10 August of 11, and uh, I I came across this a few days ago, downloaded it. It's been sitting on my computer, um, 
and uh, I, I was I could swear it was the North Florida FISDA, which I believe is like Gainesville or or uh, maybe North Florida Fight Standards District Office. Yep. Right. Yep. So, they're yeah. the ones that did it. Yeah. They're, they're, basically, they've been fielding all these all these uh, complaints. And, uh, you know, they have to, initially anyway, they have to do something with these complaints. So they investigated them. And um, kind of a success story for uh, uh, the FAA government and uh, um, uh, the good people, the white hats and the, all, all together at once, um, decided that uh, they would go back and, and uh, deliver this briefing and say, look, you know, we've done this. Um, there's nothing. We, we've looked at all your complaints. There's no validity to them. Leave us alone. Go away. Go do something else. Yeah. We are not going to respond to this anymore. Well, and, and, and this is what they were up against. The folks of the town, some of the folks of the town of Grant Valkyria were filing complaints against the airport, against Florida Institute of Technology's aviation operation there, a flight safety operation, Florida Department of Transportation, anybody that they could rat on, basically. And it was some asinine stuff, like, uh, quote, a Valkyria airplane chased me down the interstate, close quote. <laughs> or a plane came in and then left on a runway that was too short for it to use. Says who? <laughs> uh, by, an airplane is doing... Right, that's what I'm saying. If it, it came got in, out of there, it got out. An airplane is doing dangerous aerobatics over homes, uh, and it turned out to be a radio control model at a 40-year-old established RC model flying site. Yeah. And some of these quote-unquote activists are liars, yeah. submitting... Well, the, the, Photoshopped images of alleged illegal activities where none and in fact occurred. And my thought is, doesn't this open up these suckers to legal action on their own for filing false complaints? You'd I mean, think. don't they have to sign a paper here somewhere or do they just get to drop a dime and say, nini, nani, nuni? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but, but congratulations but to the uh, – yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the numbers here are interesting. They, the the FISDO had seven inspectors working on this project, estimated 186 man hours over nine months. Forty-six official records were opened and closed, um, and uh, they've got you know a, a Google shot of the airport. It's nice, it looks like a nice little airport. It's it's one of these standard, uh, World War II triangle uh, runway configuration airports. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's there's uh, photos of aircraft going over houses, and um, um, street names, and you know. Uh, uh, here's the investigative conclusions did not result in violations at or around the airport. Flight standards investigations were unable to substantiate any of the complaints received during this time frame. Boom. Yeah. So you know we could we could just go on cheering for a long time but let's just end it by saying congratulations to the north florida fisdo for exactly. amazing well, common congratulations sense. to the fisdo congratulations to the airport management for not caving in to the eaa chapter for staying hard-edged about this and pushing back that would be eaa chapter 1288 the Dan general daniel chappie james jr chapter about valkyria uh you know Big kudos to everybody involved, 
And as far as the rest of you, Sierra Tango Foxtrot Uniform. <laughs> <laughs> so the reason, the reason I missed the hurricane here in New England is that uh, I was, that entire week, uh, I was in Ray Township, Michigan. And uh, I was. Oh, that sounds like a ray of sunlight. Yeah, it was, I, I, I didn't. I didn't know they incarcerated prisoners there. <laughs> no, <laughs> anything but a prisoner. This was just one of the most pleasant weeks I've spent in a long time, and that almost includes Oshkosh. This was just a really wonderful week we had out here. Um, the the event I was attending was Acro Camp that we've talked about in the past. Uh, Acrocamp, for anybody who hasn't been paying attention, uh, is a an event that's run by uh, Airspeed's uh, the Airspeed podcast's Steve Tupper. Um, it is a uh, five and a, four and a half five day uh, intensive total immersion course in aerobatics that is given to four students by two instructors using three airplanes, and uh, they you know each student flies two to three training flights each day. And uh, there's just a lot of postmortems and training and ground school and and socializing and enjoying the airport and 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 then all of this is filmed by Steve and a crew that he puts has put together in order to turn it into a documentary movie uh, telling the story of of how average everyday pilots um, take to the whole idea of learning aerobatics and and, and acro and uh, it's it, it's just you know it was a terrific week. Um, I attended Acro Camp Number One a little over a year ago, and that was terrific. But this one was even better. Um, this one was held at um, the Ray Community Airport in Ray Township, Michigan. It's about an hour's drive north of Detroit. Uh, it's a just to die for charmingly. Steve was talking about how charming this airport was, and we were all thinking, "Yeah, I'm sure it's nice, Steve, but it can't possibly be as nice as you describe it." Well, it is. Uh, it is this terrific little grassroots strip, um, privately owned. It's owned by the people who use the airport. Uh, it. I, I talked about this last episode. It has no airport fence. The runways go within 30 feet of the road. Um, it, it's just part of the community there. I mean, and. Uh, and and they've built a terrific community on the airport itself. I mean, in addition to having a lot of airport airplanes based there, a lot of hangars, um, so the variety of airplanes was just spectacular. Uh, they've done a lot to kind of make a social environment too. The uh, the so-called terminal building, um, which is really just kind of a, a big pilot's lounge, uh, not only is a very comfortable space with a big conference table and a bunch of couches and a big screen TV, um, they also stock it with uh, drinks and beverages and uh, I mean soft drinks obviously and uh, beverages and um, popcorn and ice cream bars and and it's no, all no Jeremiah weed. Well, I'm coming to that in a minute. <laughs> But uh, no, no Jeremiah. Let in the him terminal. tell the story in the terminal building, and it's all the honor system. They just got these little uh, donation buckets, and they ask you to put in a dollar for most things and three dollars for the frozen burger. I mean, just it's just, and they keep it stocked every morning. This nice retired couple comes into the terminal building, and they kind of straighten everything out and restock the refrigerator, and you know, and the airport manager is there every day, you know, getting things straightened out and cutting the grass. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just it was a marvelous Remi experience. Reminds me of my former father-in-law coming in in the wedding weekends restocking the, the all the the uh, bars and, and refrigerators in the hotel suites that was that was a good time uh-huh yeah. yeah so uh, Ray community airport was just a terrific place and uh, I you know I've been comparing notes with uh, will Hawkins and with Steve Tupper and others who were there and now that we've been home for a couple of days and we're all just you know really homesick for Ray community airport it's just a terrific place if, if you're anywhere out if I was anywhere out there in that part of the country 
I would, you know, within a, I don't know, an hour plus drive of this place, that would be my airport. It's just a Jack, how much, how much was 100 low lead? Uh, oh, gosh. Uh, there were like three different prices because there was like a price for people who just were transient. And there was a price for people who uh, I think there was a club price. And then there was like a owner's price or something like that. And they were in the fives. I don't remember the exact number. Um, I think they were like as low five, five, oh, five and change up to five seventy five. I don't know. Don't hold me to that. I actually okay. have a picture. You know, actually, now, let me stop. Now you mentioned I had took a picture. Let me find the picture. I, I put a set of photos in my Flickr account. If you're interested, go to flickr.com slash photos slash JGH, which is my initials. JGH? Yeah. And uh, and I've got a bunch of pictures that I put up there. All right. Where's the price sheet? Here it is right here. Oh, it said, uh, so it said uh, fuel price, credit card, Visa, MasterCard, $5.38 a gallon. Uh, the so-called Blu-ray member, five thirty-three a gallon. And the Blu-ray Club discount was five oh six a gallon. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so the airport was terrific, um, and uh, I would go back and visit this airport in a heartbeat. It was really, really very, very nice. I mean, if you're even in the area, fly in, stop by, you know, say hi to the locals. I mean, they have like you know, one whole side of the terminal building is just all windows, so you can just sit in the terminal building and look out onto the ramp and onto the runways. They've got rows of chairs uh, outside the building if you can just kind of sit Remi- down. Reminds me a little bit of the restaurant at uh, Stearman Field, aka Benton, out northwest of Wichita. No fence. Runway end is within 30 feet of the road, and the restaurant, which has a full bar, has all this glass. Hey, hey, hey. Oh, it just was you know, you, you, I, when you when you send a note talking about you know the 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 runway proximity to the road, no fence, images of other places that are still that way started popping in my head. Benton, Kansas, uh, aka Stearman Field, is one. Uh, got a great restaurant and a full bar in it, and. All this glass and a covered patio right there next to the uh, ramp where you refuel. Yeah. Looking at the runway. Dead cow. Yeah. Uh, no fence. 30 feet from the road. Uh, and it's landlocked by an industrial park. It's not in the country like Benton. But, man, they're still out there, and they are worth their weight in platinum. Yeah. Yeah. So the airport was terrific. Um, let me just talk for a couple minutes about Acrocamp. And I'm going to be writing some things about it and, and telling the story in lots of different ways. I also did a lot of blog posts on the UCAP blog over the last week, if you want to read some of the uh, the, the postings. And uh, Steve Tupper also did some postings on the Acrocamp website as well. But uh, So Acrocamp was uh, four pilots. Um, they were uh, Denise and Ruby and David and David, which that, that that wasn't sufficiently confusing, but we had David and David. We started using code names for all four of them before the week was out. <laughs> um, uh, David, uh, one David was a, a businessman from Southern California, flies a 182 most of the time, uh, and uh, all, uh, none of them had had any appreciable acro. Only one of them was tailwheel endorsed. And uh, so uh, David from Los Angeles... Uh, the other David is David Allen, the uh, podcaster David Allen, who, uh, uh, as sort of an experiment, uh, was brought in to be one of the campers. Uh, then uh, uh, Denise was one of the, one of the women, uh, uh, sort of a not a housewife exactly, but uh, you know, just sort of a, a, a an individual who likes flying and uh, got her pilot's license a bunch of years ago. Um, she described it, I believe, as being just something that was on her bucket list, and she wanted to learn how to fly. And uh, and then when she heard about Acrocamp, that was something that was on her bucket list as well. So she came on 
out and uh, uh, and uh, got into the course. And then uh, a woman, a woman whose name, whose whose given name is Mary McDonald, but who goes by the name Ruby Riptide. Uh, Ruby Riptide. Ruby is a uh, is among other things. She's a lot of things. She's a, a pilot, uh, a uh, about to be commercial pilot. Uh, she's a web developer uh, and uh, an, been involved with aviation in a number of different ways over the years. Um, her nickname comes from the fact that she's also a member of the, I believe it's called the Santa Cruz Hellcats, uh, women's roller derby team in Santa Cruz, California. And uh, Ruby was quite a character uh, and uh, and turned out to be a very, very uh, a pleasant person to be around. And uh, so these were the four campers. Um, they had varying levels of, of, uh, of anxiety about doing this, but they were all real gamers and, and got into it. Um, and, and like the last time they took to it in varying, you know, different ways. Some of them just never had a problem, just went barreling on through and, and others struggled with a little bit, but they all eventually, after as little as four days of training, really, really accomplished a lot, um, I could go on forever talking about the week, and, and I will in other forums, but uh, the the big finish of the week was for uh, any of the campers who felt like they were up to it to actually fly the what's called the primary, which is a, uh, the very, very first competitive routine that, uh, that new aerobatic pilots fly when you're participating in an um, IAC uh, competition. And so three of the four actually performed the primary routine um, in front of a real IAC judge who was uh, brought in for that one particular thing. And uh, he was very, very impressed. I mean, we were all impressed, but even he was impressed. This is like a serious, grizzled old pilot, you know, who flies advanced IAC stuff himself. And he saw these people and said, you've only been doing this for four days? You know, that's very impressive. And they were impressive. They did a very, very good job flying these routines and learning the stuff. And, um, and we had a chance to kind of talk to them all throughout the process and hear about their, you know, their fears and their successes and the struggles and the, you know, the victories. And it's quite a thing. Steve's going to turn it into a movie. Uh, I'm going to turn it into some sort of written thing, whether it's a magazine article or a short book or something like that. I'm not sure. But uh, Acrocamp was terrific. This was better than the first one. And uh, I can't wait to see the movie. And uh, so... I had a couple of fun things I got to do, sort of out extracurricular, if you were, if you will, during Acrocamp. Um, the first was um, midweek. We actually took a day off in the middle of this. When we did Acrocamp one, we did four consecutive days, and four consecutive days was a little bit wearing on everybody, particularly the the students. And so we decided this time to take a day off in the middle. So they did two days of training, an off day, and then two more days of training. So on the night on, on the night of the second day of training, when we didn't have anything to do the next day, we had a little party, and we had a good old time. We bought a lot of uh, hors d'oeuvres and hot dogs and hamburgers and and soft drinks and beers and chips and dips and everything like that, and uh, we just had a really really nice time on the deck um, of the FBO building there at Ray Community, and and it was a good old time. We all had a really good time. Steve Tupper brought out some of the legendary Jeremiah Weed liqueur for us to try out. And uh, I think we've talked about this on the podcast in the past, but Jeremiah Weed is a, a bourbon liqueur, and apparently that's important to Nick. Well, it, it, there's different Jeremiah Weeds. There are, and that's important, all right, because the other ones aren't what we're talking about here, okay? It's the bourbon liqueur, all right? Okay, okay. Is, is right. that what we... Not is the that sweet we, tea. Is that what we Not taste? Not the sweet tea. I don't believe so, Jeb. I don't think we were tasting the right stuff. No, we... 
down in Florida. Okay. Okay. So the way you drink this stuff is you actually freeze it. You put the bottle in the freezer. All right. And and it doesn't freeze, but it bec- it it almost it thickens it. All right. It becomes very very syrupy almost. All right. And you pour small shots of the stuff and you drink it. And it's and it is sort of this bizarre combination of vile and tasty, and uh, and oh I should say potent. It's very potent. It's like a hundred proof. And uh, well. That's about all I'll say on the podcast, but we drank two or three bottles of Jeremiah weed uh, that evening, and uh, we had a good old time. A good time was had by all, those drinking and those watching, I'm afraid to say. I'm not going to confess as to which one of those I was, but uh, we did Jeremiah weed. That was good. Uh, On a little bit more serious, uh, uh, fun aviation note, uh, I got a chance to go flying twice during the week, um, which was not scheduled, but uh, Steve tried to find opportunities for us. Um, the first was that, uh, we had a lot of visitors, people who just kind of came in to watch the festivities and to help out. And, uh, one person flew in from, uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan in a skycatcher. This was the first skycatcher I've actually seen in the wild. And, uh, so obviously got a chance to kind of get up and close, up close with it and, and talk to the guy about it. And he says, you want to go flying? And I said, um, yeah. So, uh, we climbed on board the skycatcher and went, went flying for about, uh, 45 minutes. And, uh, and, you know, David, you're right. That's a fun little airplane. I kind of like it. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's a real sweet flying little airplane. Yeah, you know. The, 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 the control architecture is a little different. Yeah, the, the way those sticks are oriented, the stick yoke kind of thing, right? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't twist. It moves forward and backward and side to side. Right, yeah. And, and you kind of want to be able to twist your wrist in uh, roll instead of actually moving it side to side. But you get over that pretty quickly. Yeah. And it lends itself well to a left-handed guy like me. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I got to fly it a little bit um, straight and level. Well, not straight, uh, level. We were at cruise. And so he gave me control, and I, and I flew straight for a while, and I did some 360s and, and just kind of got a little bit of a feel for the airplane. And it was very pleasant. It was a little bit of a bumpy day. It was fairly windy. And uh, um, we were getting bounced around a little bit, but it wasn't at all unpleasant, uh, which is to say it's not as light an airplane as you might think. Um, you know, it got bounced around a little more than a 172, like, than a 152, but it was in that range. It wasn't bad, uh, very comfortable, and um, and a lot of, of elbow room. I mean, it was a really very broad cockpit. It, it was, oh, yeah, and if you, you know, if it, 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 there's this... It's the replacement. It's the you know. It's the next 150, 152, and they even gave it the 162 model number. But there's nothing common to those airplanes, except maybe the fact that in both of these airplanes, the Skycatcher and the 150, 152, your butt's really close to the floor and your legs go out kind of straight. Yeah, that's true. My legs were a little well. See, I, I was trying to keep my legs off the rudders for a lot of the flight because I wasn't flying. Um, but, uh, well, and you know that that little knob down there yep. moves the rudder pedals forward and back. Forward and back, yeah. And, uh, and it's real easy to move that, those puppies out of the way if you yeah, need to. And I didn't actually do that, but I, I just sort of there's a there's a little bit of a ridge about halfway back, and so I just kind of right my knees keep your and, heels hung, hung on that. Yeah, that's what I did. So uh, um, it was a very pleasant airplane to fly. I you know I I didn't know exactly what I, what to expect or what I might have you know expected but uh but i, I was very pleasantly the, the only the only thing it doesn't do well is yeah. come is come down quickly okay i i okay i can believe that i we didn't exactly see that on our little flight we went off and landed at a place called marine city which is a about 
15, 20 miles to the east. And uh, we actually didn't land. We did well, we did touch and go. So we landed and then immediately. It, it's off. really clean. It's so much cleaner than a 150, 152. Yeah. And when you pull the power back on it, it glides. It doesn't pick up sink rate at quite the way you might expect based on some of these other high-wing tricycle air, gear airplanes that you might get a chance to fly. Yeah. Uh, so it, it takes a little different uh, management of the final approach. Uh, and it's got big, powerful flaps, great big Johnson bar to crank them in. It's a nice, roomy, and a lot of luggage space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can't carry a lot weight-wise with full fuel, but space for everything you'd ever want to put back there. And he was saying that you can flight plan for 110 knots, true, which is, you know, I mean, it's not a, you know, debonair. Well, but we, 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 we planned for and got a little better than 115. Yeah. When we were fluent, when uh, Mr. Kirby Ortega from Sustin and I flew it from uh, San Diego to Tampa and then down to Hidden River, uh, we, we were turning in an honest 115, 116, 117 true airspeed in cruise. Uh, and the G300 system in it made it really easy to figure that out because it adjusted for the air. So it would just tell you, oh, this is what you're trying. Mm-hmm. And that worked That's, out for the GPS, too. Yeah. So. Jeff, it's so cheating. It's just, yeah. it's just so cheating to have, to have all that just right at your fingertips. You ought, to be, you ought to have to at least pull out a whiz wheel or something. I know. Well, there was an E6B function in it that I played with a little bit, and yeah. it that matched up. Count. It doesn't count. It matched up. So the Skycatcher was fun, and uh, my thanks go out to uh, Andy Fowler of, uh, and I, I, I can't find, I confess I don't have in my head the name of the club that it, the airplane belonged to, but I believe it was based at Ann Arbor, Michigan. And uh, but I thanks Andy for the ride and uh, uh, and to the club for letting him bring it on up. Um, fun airplane. I, I, I want to learn a little visi- bit more about it. Visibility out of the puppy is just outstanding. Yeah, yeah. It was very nice, very nice. And then finally, uh, sort of the big finish here um, is that uh, – uh, like many of the crew members, uh, I was given the opportunity to actually get some some dual training uh, in the Pitts S2B, which is the hot little biplane acro plane that uh, <laughs> you, you you've probably all seen pictures of of one of them or something similar. And man, this is an this was an airplane ride. I have to tell you, this was an airplane ride. It was more than a ride. I did get to fly a bit of it, um, and uh, and uh, uh, instructor Don Weaver did in fact uh, log it for me uh, and put it in my logbook as as dual received. I uh, just to kind of give you a, a little short description of the flight, um, or at least the parts of it that I remember, uh, is that uh, we uh, f- we took off on on runway 27 there at Ray. Um, the runways at Ray basically are there's two runways crossing at 90 degrees and basically an, a big cross. And so um, Don had been doing this departure in the pits. Um, all this was the first day of Acro Camp, and he'd been doing this departure a lot where he he. he accelerates down the runway, he lifts off into ground effect, he accelerates in ground effect down the runway, and just before he gets to the end of the runway, he pulls hard and climbs really steeply, getting up maybe to about halfway to pattern altitude, and then he kind of veers off to the um, on a crosswind and then to downwind, and gets probably almost to... to, uh, to uh, um, pattern altitude um, at about midfield. And then what he would do is he would then 
turn left and uh, down onto the crossing runway and fly a low pass. Uh, see, this is one of the beauties of being at a small, uncontrolled strip, uh, so you can do this kind of stuff. And he would kind of do a little zoom um, across along that crossing runway and rock his wings and then depart the area to go off to the training mission. And I had seen him do this departure a couple of different times. So when my turn came... Um, I, I was expecting it. And so we did this zoom down the runway. We did the big pull and I was having a great, this was great. Didn't bother me at all. You know, and this was really fun. I'm looking out the window. Obviously I'm not flying. And, uh, and then we climbed all the way up to pattern altitude. And now we're on a downwind for the, this departure runway. And we're about to make this turn and dive at the runway. All right. I didn't realize how extreme that turn was. All right. This wasn't like simply, you know, turn and descend. All right. He basically rolled the aircraft beyond 90 degrees and then dropped the nose dramatically. All right. So this basically, the airplane basically almost <laughs> inverted. Right. You know, we're like cruising along, you know, having this beautiful view of the countryside and the airport down to my left. All right. And then all of a sudden the airplane rotates a quarter, more than a quarter to the left. All right. And then the nose drops and we're like zooming at the ground. And I mean, I'm going, whoa! You know, so I, and I totally trust Don, so I knew we weren't in trouble. But and because I had seen him, do, I'm saying, oh, that's what this is like from up here. Well, and so we zoomed down at the runway and we did the low pass, and then we, and then in my case, he didn't do a wind rock. He did sort of a knife edge flight thing along that crossing runway, so that we were looking down at the uh, at the ramp, and then we started to climb out and we were headed out to the practice area. And as we were climbing out, um, you know, we were probably up to about 2,000 feet, and he gave me control of the airplane. And the very first thing I noticed was incredibly sensitive these controls are. I mean, you know, there's an old old cliche about these pits and about these kinds of aircraft in general that you don't control them, you just kind of think about controlling them. And uh, it was really true. I was just trying to get the feel for the controls, you know, and I, I and, and you know, we were all notorious for not being very good on the rudders. So the first thing I did was go and kind of press the rudders a little bit just to kind of feel whether I was coordinated. And the tiniest bit of rudder input made this thing yaw, like, whoa, what's that? You know, and Don's going, yeah, yeah, it's really sensitive. you got to be really gentle. And likewise with the stick. So I'm kind of just getting the feel of it as we're climbing up to about 4,500 feet. And uh, we got up to 4,500 feet, and uh, he took back the airplane, and he said, okay, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll demonstrate it. Uh, I'm going to show you how to do an aileron roll. And so uh, he, he you know, talks me through it. You basically raise the nose about 15, 20, 30 degrees, something like that. And then suddenly you center the controls and then go stick left almost all the way to the left, and the airplane rolls. And he says, okay, now you do it. <laughs> and I'm going, oh, okay, <laughs> all right. you know, um, Because, you know, I'm Jack Hodgson of UCAP. I cannot crap out on this you know i have to do it right so i said all right i'll do this and so uh with him certainly following along on the controls and talking me through it you know we basically um you know we're first level pull back the stick get the nose up to about whatever it was 20 or 30 degrees then center the controls then left stick all right and the thing just rolls it was actually not that hard i mean i was i was kind of stunned at how straightforward it was you put the stick all the way over and the airplane just rolls on, on basically on a line you don't have to do much jack, more jack i want to say this one time yeah okay pits is whether whether certified or experimental are relatively cheap these days. Oh, yeah, and, you think? And, That's and, the way it is. this resolves the high-wing, low-wing problem. <laughs> That's right. You got one of both. I got one of both. So I, uh, just, I, just want to, I just want to point that out to you. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm going to step aside. Okay. 
<laughs> so I did the did the all around roll. I actually messed it up slightly. Apparently, I do something that's not uncommon. And in the process, you're supposed to go pure left stick. You're not supposed to do any pitch. All right, you're supposed to just 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 aileron. Yep. And uh, and and I did something that a lot of people do, which was in the process of pushing the stick to the left, I also pulled it slightly. And and when you pull the stick in a roll, you end up getting nose down because apparently you lose more when you're up when you're inverted. And so we came out of the whole thing with the nose lower to the horizon than is than is you know what you're going for, and so I had to correct for that. And then we tried it again, and I did a little better the second time. So so I did the aileron rolls, and uh, and then he did a, uh, a, a half Cuban, which is a is a a, a loop, and then it and then after you've kind of gone over the top of the loop and you're kind of headed back down on the other side of the loop, you straighten out on a 45 degree downward and then you roll the airplane. It's inverted at this point and you roll upright and then just continue down on a 45 um, to the altitude you started out at. So that's a half Cuban. And uh, he did one of those and he says, okay, now you're going to try and do it. And I'm going, you think so? (laughs) He says, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so he kind of talked me through it and I sort of controlled it, but not really, you know, and, uh, but I did it. And so I did a, I did a half Cuban and uh, and then he says, look, now here's how we do it. And he did it for real, and it's really cool. And so uh, so now I'm starting to get a little, you know, okay, I'm getting close to being done here, all right? And uh, and Jack the Snap Roll Hodgson. Well, here we go. You ready? So he goes, uh, you know, he says, you want you want me, you know? I said I said, why don't you fly for a while, Don? And he goes, okay, all right. Which was really when I think about bad it, bad idea, bad, big, idea. big mistake, yeah, exactly. Yep. All right. Because he says, okay, let's have some fun with this. I think those may have been his exact words. <laughs> let's have some fun with this. He says, uh, and so he flew another half Cuban, and he says, okay, now you want to see a spin? I and my, I confess, so maybe I should be embarrassed. I have never, ever been in an airplane when it spun. Um, it's the Really? Idea, yeah, the idea scares me. All right. Oh, my. All right. So, I mean, I'd seen it, and I'd visualized it, and, you know, all that kind of stuff, you know, and, you know, and I've sort of memorized the recovery kind of stuff, but I've never actually done it. And so he says, let's do a spin. And, and uh, I'm going, okay. And, he's, and he just, you know, did it. And, it, it, and it's, just, it's just exactly what you expect. But having the airplane suddenly roll over on its back like that and the nose fall out of the sky is, is kind of a dramatic thing. You know, rolls nose down and then does, it, does a couple of rotations and then he pulled right out of it. And that was kind of interesting. Yeah, you're about two turns in before the airplane and your stomach catch up with yeah, one another. Yeah, yeah. So we did did a couple of those. He did a couple of those, and and then he says, and and then he says the words that have become sort of a common a combination um, nightmare and and fantasy for me since then. He says, "Want to see an avalanche?" All right, (laughs) and I go. (laughs) I I see the, the avalanche I have in mind is not anything like. That he can conceive of. Yeah. So okay. he said, uh, which I'll get to when you finish. I said, I don't know. What's an avalanche, right? <laughs> and he says, he says it's a loop with a snap roll at the top, all right. And then you continue the loop, you know. And like I said, I'm Jack Hodgson of UCAP, so I have to go through with this. So I said, yeah, okay. And he says, you want to try it? And I said, no, no, Don, you do it. You know. <laughs> so, so we pulled up into the roll, and the rolls. I'm fine. We done rolls. We did, you know, Jeb and you and I. We did rolls when we flew with the aeroshell guys, right? And rolls, you know, kind of cool, and not all that dramatic. And uh, so you fly the. I'm sorry, no roll loop. We flew loops, and so you fly the loop. You go all the way up to the top of the loop, all right, and then where you're upside down. Where you're upside down, all right, and then suddenly he snaps it, all right. And anybody doesn't know, a snap roll is basically a spin on the horizontal line, all right. So it's a horizontal spin, and so basically the airplane just goes 
you know, snaps around, all right? And, you know, he knows what he's doing, man. So he just did one snap, and suddenly it was back inverted again, and then we just continued the, the loop all the way back out of it. But, man, that you was You know why they recommend against more than three snap rolls in a row? <laughs> why is that? Well, you grow an inch and a half because of the centrifugal force yeah. pulling on your ass and your head. I can believe it, man. So, anyways... And I don't know, we may have done some more stuff after that, and I won't say that I blacked out, but it's all a little <laughs> fuzzy after that. Uh, it was it was quite an adventure, and uh, I came back thinking, okay, the aileron roll stuff, the loop stuff, even the calf cuban was kind of cool. I could deal with that some more. Um, but the avalanche, I don't need to do another one of those for a little while, you know. My, and, my favorite was always the Emmelman. Yeah, oh yeah. Well, describe you pull it into a loop, and then you roll it upright at the top of the loop. Oh, yeah. That's kind of cool, I would think. I don't know. We didn't do Wind that. Wind up but. going back the opposite direction very yeah. quickly. Yeah. So uh, so we did this. I got back, and, and I was a little shaken. I did not have any stomach problems or anything like that. Um, and uh, Although about a half an hour after I'd been back on the ground, my stomach was more upset than it was when I was in the airplane. And I'm told that's not uncommon. Uh, for, no, it's not. So... Uh, but it was quite an experience. Um, at the time, I was really distressed about a lot, particularly inverted with negative Gs, with serious negative Gs, not just like one negative G. Um, I found that to be very, very disorienting. When the airplane was in that kind of really extreme, unusual attitude, I had a real hard time understanding which way was which. I'm, I'm sitting there going, I don't have a clue how we would get out of this if I was it, flying. It's really hard when you're not the one on the stick. I guess. So. I mean, it's uh, a lot easier... I can, I, 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 I bet Jeb's kind of the same way. I have a hard time sitting through multiple aerobatic maneuvers, mm-hmm. and 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 not having things go totally, you know, blotto. But if the guy shows me one and I do one, and then shows me another and I do it, I can go out and do them myself all afternoon and never feel disoriented. Yeah. But it has that set connection with the machine and the brain, the hand, the feet, and the butt. Yeah. So we we came back and landed, and uh, it was a funny turnaround because we we spent the whole week. um, I was part of the crew. I was actually part of the team that was interviewing people for the video when they came back from their flights. And so all week long, we would be greeting people as they taxied up on the ramp, and we'd put a camera in their face and start asking them questions, all right? Well, when I returned from my little flight, I was on the other end of this whole thing because they put camera in my face and asked me all kinds of questions about it, and I tried to be clever. I, you know, it's like, just not fair. We were going to do that to them, but they shouldn't be doing it to me. But uh, we, uh, so they, uh, they, you know, and and for that hour, you know, or so afterwards, my standard answer was there were parts of the flight that I think I'd like to do again, and there were other parts that I'm not anxious to try for a little while. But by the next morning, I was really starting to feel like, you know, there are ways I could deal with the things that was giving me trouble, and maybe if I snuck up on it a little bit and kind of acclimated myself, and, and you know, I could maybe do this kind of stuff, you know? Put put on sunglasses next time. I won't know you're coming. <laughs> yeah, right. So, uh Big thanks to uh, to uh, uh, instructor pilot CFI uh, Don Weaver for uh, for giving me a, an exposure to this and for signing my logbook, which I'm very very proud of. And uh, um, and thanks, of course, to Steve Tupper for making the whole thing possible. That's this is a, sort of my long bit about Camp. It was a terrific week. Um, the people were wonderful. The place was wonderful. The flying was wonderful. It, 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 you know, it's too bad we can't do it more often. Um, maybe we will someday. I don't know. By the way, um, the last thing I'll say about Acrocamp is that uh, uh, so now for the, for the, there have been eight Acrocamp students so far, and uh, during this week, one of them finally did in fact throw up as a result of flight operations. So uh, 
and I and I know that the uh, and the uh, the the team, the Acrocamp team, took this as a little bit of a of a six, you know a a, a win. <laughs> it's like felt like maybe they were too easy on them last time, so we actually got somebody to throw up this time. And uh, and as we tried to to to, ins- to convince this individual, it's actually a bit of a badge of honor. Uh, it's it's like you know what happens sometimes. I mean, just deal with it and go on, fly some more. And this person did in fact continue to fly and did terrific throughout the rest of the week. So you can get past even that. That's enough. I'm sorry I go on so long about Acrocamp. It was just awesome. It was just terrific. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. Yeah, it is very cool. I'm yeah. glad you had a good time. I'll, I'll have to put that on my calendar next year. You really should. You really should. I know you got a lot of things on your plate, but you really would have enjoyed this week. Both of you would have. And, uh, you know, if you know, maybe we should try and figure out how to get UCAP there so that we can have some kind of official presence. You never know. Shout-outs. Let's see now. Uh, we've got a bunch of things here. Um, let's see now. David, you had two, so why don't you go first with one of them? Okay. The uh, young man from Arkansas, out being, he's being given his very first airplane ride and asked the guy flying him around in this 182 to take him over his home. Now, you may have heard this because since we put this on the list uh, uh, several days ago, it's made ABC, NBC, uh, CNN, Fox, uh, the, the uh, uh, public radio uh, morning edition uh, public radio show. The guy was looking at his house and saw people burglarizing the house when the airplane took him over to show him where it you know, so he could see his house from the air. <laughs> they made a call. The authorities got involved. The burglars tried to escape, and the airplane just followed along and relayed turn-by-turn instructions until the perpetrators were caught, arrested, and incarcerated. And it's like, now that's a first flight to brag about. That's great. I know. That's exactly right. I, I'd seen that headline, but I didn't realize I actually followed the guy. I thought it was just like they saw something on the ground that was suspicious and called the cops. But uh, no, so no, this followed. is uh, yeah. Uh, this was uh, according to the Craighead, Craighead County Sheriff's Office. Roosevelt Smith the third and Joseph Peel. Both of Jonesboro, Arkansas, have been arrested and charged with residential burglary and theft of property because David Hudson, Stephen Lynn, and another friend went flying on, this is last Friday, and uh, Lynn asked Hudson to take them over to Lynn's house, and Lynn sees guys burglarizing his house, and they took it from there. Very cool. Uh, now, you know, that's not your usual kind of eye-in-the-sky thing, but... Whatever works. There you go. Yeah, that's great. Let's see. Now, I've got one here. Um, I just want a little shout out to EAA for uh, following through or continuing to follow through on a, a plan that they, I think they announced at AirVenture, um, and that is to spin off an adult version of the Young Eagles program. The Young Yay. Eagles, yeah, the Young Eagles program has been been phenomenally successful for anyone, for the few people, the two people who don't know about Young Eagles. Um, it's a program where EA members give um, first airplane rides to kids um, in the idea that it will excite them about aviation and about science and math and all that kind of stuff and uh, and, and ultimately turn a large percentage of them into uh, into pilots. And and it has been very, very successful. And literally millions or million over a million kids have been flown over the years. And uh, 
um, and many of them have gone on to uh, great flying careers. It's been going on so long now. I mean, probably the first Young Eagles flew 20 years ago almost now. Yeah. Getting close to that, 92, yeah. 93. Yeah. So uh, they're all grown – not all, but many of them are grown up now and have gone on to flying careers every now and then. You hear about somebody who's like you know, a uh, airline pilot who started – well, maybe not an airline pilot, but a very successful pilot who uh, started out as a young eagle. So it's a great program. Um, and I used to be involved not so much lately, but for years I was very involved in young eagles through the EAA chapters that I was involved with. And one of the very, very common sort of joking complaints was that the parents wanted to go for a ride. And the Young Eagles program was not set up. So the the great thing about the Young Eagles program was that it provided insurance coverage and all kinds of things like that. So we were only able to fly kids, you know, officially according to the program. But uh, the parents wanted to go flying, too. And EAA probably has heard that message over and over again. They're finally doing something about it. So they've announced, uh, this is reading from a story on avweb.com, EAA plans Young Young Eagles for adults. EAA will expand the Young Eagle program to include a version for adults, Rod Hightower, CEO um, uh, of EAA, told about 25 members attending the organization's annual general meeting uh, at AirVenture. So the program we directed towards the parents of kids in Young Eagles and at giving adults a Young Eagle type experience. So that's great. My only thing is I pray that the EAA, my, our friends at EAA will not give it some hokey name like Silver Eagles or, or, or you know, I don't know, because uh, it's not about seniors. It's not about older folks. It's about adults. It's about people who are older. It's than just the about seven. people that are not kids. Yeah, it's about people who are older than the 17-year-old cutoff for Young Eagles. So... Uh, but it's going to be a great program. I'm looking forward to it, and uh, I want to get involved with it. So congratulations. Shout out to uh, EAA. Yeah. Jeb, you had something. Yeah, real quick. Um, to the American Bonanza Society for um, fixing one of the, the greater uh, um, nonsensical federal aviation regulations. Uh, and um, this has to do with uh, single control airplanes like mine. Uh, specifically, uh, uh, Bonanzas, Debonairs, Travelairs, Barons, uh, with a throwover yoke. In other words, there's a central uh, uh, mechanism coming out of the center of the panel, and you can uh, the, it has, a, has an arm on it, and you can position that in front of the left seat or in front of the right seat, but you can't do it at both. Uh, now, there are you know dual yoke uh, 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 equipment you can add on or, or bolt onto these things, and, and have dual yokes, just like a Cessna or a Piper. Um, but for years, uh, that's the way Bonanzas were made. Um, and uh, there was always FAR 91109, which basically prohibited flight instruction in that type of airplane with a single control yoke um, if uh, the uh, instructor did not have an exemption from the, uh, uh, um, this particular regulation. So if you needed flight instruction in a Bonanza with a throwover yoke, you had to find a CFI uh, who had uh, the exemption piece of paper or find a dual yoke Bonanza, and there, you can go either way. This has made no sense for as long as I can remember, um, especially if the pilot is already rated in the airplane. And basically the, the effect this had was you're flying a Bonanza, a Debonair, a Baron, a Travel Air for years thousands of hours, but unless you get a throw unless you get a double yoke or unless the CFI has this exemption, you cannot get instruction in your own airplane. And that never made any sense. The mm-hmm. American Bonanza Society, of which I'm a member, um, 
uh, is is very proud of the fact that uh, uh, the recent uh, recently announced uh, rewrite of parts, or I won't say rewrite, uh, amendments to parts 61, 91, and 141 dealing with flight training uh, have been uh, rewritten and, inc and include recognition of uh, pilots who are competent and rated in the airplane and current um, should be able to get flight instruction in single yoke airplanes and that's what the reg uh, now says. This is all effective October 31. So. Thanks to ABS, but also I think maybe a little thanks to the FAA for coming to their senses. Very good. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. David, you had another one, I believe. Well, and, and maybe the FAA will take the same kind of wise and studied tact with the petition that's before the agency now from AOPA, EAA, Gamma, and the National Association of Flight Instructors, NAFI to change Part 61 regulations governing certification of pilots to allow the 20 hours that a sport pilot is required to log, 10 hours dual, 10 hours solo minimum, to count toward a private pilot's license, as was intended when the sport pilot rule was promulgated, what, coming up on six years ago now? Uh, I've heard arguments that, well, you know, they sport pilots don't get to do night. They don't get to develop judgment on this, judgment on that. You know, at 10 hours on the private pilot syllabus, 10 hours solo, 10 hours dual, neither have they. That's exactly right. It, neither have they. That's what the 40-hour total is for. Nobody expected that to be crammed into the 20 hours of a sport pilot syllabus. And any, and I'm sorry, and I'm and, and I'm going to get real harsh here. I've read some really bright, otherwise knowledgeable people make some of the most numb nut arguments about why this shouldn't be allowed that I could ever conceive of. Because if you go through the syllabus point by point, they are not identical, but they are so close to the same exact tasks, goals, and and instructional work in the first ten hours on both licenses to, as to be virtually identical and toward the same goal. So let's let the folks that get a sport pilot ticket count that 20 hours toward their private. Then they can even maybe start to count some of the extra time they've flown solo, accomplishing other things right along the way that they're allowed to do as a sport pilot, but heretofore aren't counted because, oh, my God, they didn't get it from a certificated flight instructor. They only got it from a sports Instructor, I'm sorry, but it is it, nothing sensible about this, much like the throw-over yoke rule was for years. So you, you have an opportunity to comment, folks. We urge you to take it. You don't have to believe like I do, but I think if you look at it closely, logically, and open-mindedly, you'll find that there's really not a single logical reason why that shouldn't apply as intended from the beginning. And then maybe Sport Pilot will take off even more like we intended and help reverse our non-stop decline in the pilot population. And now I'm done. Okay, very good. I agree. Uh, any other shout-outs? No? Okay. 
As always, it's great talking with you guys. Thank you. Uh, Jeb Burnside uh, is a freelance aviation writer and editor and is serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, where can people find you on the Internet? As soon as I stop dropping my microphone. Um, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> Uh, jeburnside.com, uh, aviationsafetymagazine.com, occasionally avweb.com, also on aea.net. I think I'm on that Twitter machine occasionally, too. I'm not sure. Your name comes up all the time, but we seldom see you. Well, it's, it's a stealth account. That's what it is. Okay. I get it. And Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer, an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, where can people find you on the Internet? Oh, avbuyer.com, aea.net, that safety magazine thing from time to time. Uh, This month, uh, eaa.org, if you're a member and click on the uh, Sport Aviation Magazine edition that just hit the streets, you'll find a little bit of my handiwork in there as well. I'm Jack. What's What were you laughing at, handiwork or the fact that he does any work at all? I, 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 I'm not even going to – no, I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. <laughs> and I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, a new media producer, and a budding acrobatic pilot – aerobatic pilot. Excuse me, Jim. Uh, and you can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. Big thanks to Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. Thanks to Mike Morgan, Royce Earl, and to the many other listeners who have created the UCAP disclaimer clips and other audio bits that we drop into the uh, podcast. We are also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. And don't forget, you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, the new ratings webpage of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, did you want to say something? Best way to get to be old and sassy like Jeb, Jack, and me is to spend time in an airplane because, you know, time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Did you know Jack is 103? Bye-bye. And that's enough talking. Let's all go flying. Regardless of how old he is, Jack, remember, the pit solves the low-wing and high-wing dilemma. (laughs) Happy trails. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that.